Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Interstate 64 runs east-west through the heart of Virginia, cutting the Commonwealth in half. It is 299 miles long and terminates in the Hampton Roads area. It's a busy interstate that many have taken to get to Virginia Beach. On Labor Day 1989, two young folks, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, would set out on the same trek but would never make it to their destination. The case we're talking about in this episode is the last of four double homicides that took place in relatively close proximity in less than three years, commonly referred to as the Colonial Parkway murders. You don't have to go back and listen to the previous episodes for this one to make sense. Just know that when we make reference to Kathy and Becky, David and Robin, or Keith and Sandy, we're talking about the first, second, and third pair of double homicide victims of the Colonial Parkway murders, who we featured in the last three shows, episodes four, five, and six, respectively. Anna Maria was the third of four children. She had two older sisters and a younger brother, and she lived in Amelia County, Virginia. Amelia County had a population of about 9,000 at the time she was growing up there, so it was a pretty rural area in southeastern Virginia. Her brother describes her as a fireball of energy and vitality. Her sister says Anna Maria was spunky and always had a comeback ready. She was witty and she didn't have to think about it. Her sister said that spunk got Anna Maria in trouble often, and apparently Anna Maria referred to ISS as her homeroom class in school. She worked as a cook at Pizza Hut, which, you know, we have a strong penchant for Pizza Hut and all that comes with the nostalgia of it from the 80s. Not today, Pizza Hut. Uh, yeah, Back yeah. then, real Pizza Hut. Yeah, 2020s Pizza Hut is not the same thing. So if you weren't around in the 80s, I'm sorry, you just won't be able to understand. Yeah, before Rosie the Robot was cooking it through the <laughs> magic machine. Yeah, I don't even know if it qualifies as pizza anymore. Now, Anna Maria got pregnant at 16, and according to her brother, she was really excited about having the baby. Unfortunately, she was in a car accident, and shortly, not too long after that, she lost the baby. She turned her attention to her nephews at that point. She doted on them. She loved them. She enjoyed spending time with them, taking care of them. She would even take them to the Tasty Freeze regularly and just loved to do other fun things with the boys. She cared for them so much that she even kept a locket around her neck that had a picture of her nephews. Anna Maria dropped out of high school around ninth or 10th grade. She was really interested in moving on and out into the world. She kind of wanted to get things going. She had a new boyfriend who was different from uh, the father of the child that she had lost. And this new boyfriend's name was Clinton Lauer. He was 17 and he was moving to not so distant Virginia Beach. This wasn't too far away from Amelia County, but in terms of the type of area, this would be a huge change from 9,000 people in Amelia County to the biggest city in Virginia. So Anna Maria moved out of her family's home in June of 1989 to join Clinton in the apartment that he had in Virginia Beach. Once they were there, the couple both got jobs at a Wendy's making minimum wage. Shout out $5 biggie bag. That's the only deal left in fast food. It's true. I mean, there's no $5 foot long. There's no, what was it, the dollar menu at McDonald's? Oh, yeah. Now no, it's I like see. the $4 menu. Right, right. Now, in the city, particularly, it was really difficult to live on minimum wage. They were both working, but they were living paycheck to paycheck. They didn't really have a phone because they couldn't afford it. They had trouble making the light bill, so often their electricity was turned off. And then to make matters worse, Anna Maria actually got let go from the Wendy's. But there was some light at the end of the tunnel. Going into Labor Day weekend in 1989, it appeared that Daniel Lauer, Clinton's older brother, might be able to help the young couple out. 
Daniel Lauer was one of four kids. His family lived just about 10 miles from the Phelps family in the same county, Amelia County. At this time, the, the town that he lived in was incredibly simple. I'm talking small general store and a baseball field. There's a crossroads and a bunch of farmland. That's it. Wow. Yeah, not a whole lot going on there. His dad owned a painting business that Daniel got involved in from a very early age. As a kid, Daniel enjoyed building World War II models, tanks and aircraft, different things. It was just a hobby of his. He wasn't really that into school, kind of like Anna Maria. It just wasn't his thing. So he dropped out of high school. When you said that Daniel Lauer's dad was a painter, mm -hmm. do you mean like an artist painter or like a building house, whatever kind of painter? Great question. A commercial house building, okay. that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Painting walls on physical buildings, not like Picasso. Okay, cool. Daniel, he met a girl who was younger. At the time, he was 19 and she was 15, and they started dating. They were in this young love, hot and heavy sort of stage, and they just insisted they wanted to get married, but her father absolutely refused, and he was not happy about their relationship. So, as many young couples have done, Daniel and his girlfriend at the time went down to the Amelia County Courthouse. They lied about her birth date and got married anyway. Okay. The next step then was to move to Tennessee, where Daniel enlisted in the Navy. And how'd that all work out for him? Funny you should ask, because it did not last long. About three weeks in, the Navy discharged him, and shortly thereafter, he was charged and convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a minor, which was a misdemeanor, for taking this girlfriend, that at that point wife, to Tennessee. But more seriously, he was also convicted of a felony for knowingly signing the marriage license with false information on it. Don't ask me why false paperwork is a felony and delinquency of a minor across state lines is a misdemeanor. Not for me to decide, but that's what happened. Wow. So he spent a few months in jail and then was ordered by the judge not to have any contact with this girl until she turned 18. Sounds like daddy decided to sick the law on him, which is better than what daddy could have done. For sure. Reading between the lines, I think that's exactly what happened here. So like I said earlier, in 1989, Daniel's younger brother Clinton had moved to Virginia Beach with Anna Maria. And they were having money trouble. They're working minimum wage jobs at Wendy's. They're really having trouble to make ends meet in the city. But Daniel, on the other hand, you know, he was doing pretty well. He's working for his dad. He was painting, you know. That's a trade. He was making good money. So Clinton invited Daniel to Virginia Beach for Labor Day weekend. And Daniel took him up on the offer to go down and spend some time at the beach, hang out with his brother, and just see what the city had to offer. Daniel had recently received a car from his parents. They had gifted him a rough but running 1972 Chevy Nova. And it was a present for his 20th birthday. This was the car that he'd load up and take down to visit his brother in Virginia Beach. Now, a couple Daniel was friends with and their 18-month-old decided to make the trip down to Virginia Beach as well. So they all piled into this Chevy Nova and set out on the trip. So we're all going to go to the beach for Labor Day weekend. Yeah. Sounds like a good plan to me. Now, when they got to Clinton's apartment, it was dark. They were unable to make the light bill, and so they didn't have any electricity in the apartment. Yikes. And like you said, this is Virginia Beach, Labor Day weekend. This also happens to be uh, Greek Fest week, which is sort of where all the colleges are just have descended on Virginia Beach and everybody's partying. This particular year, there had been some rioting and some, it was, you can look it up in the news. I don't think it's particularly relevant, but just to sort of frame the context, there's a lot going on down there. There's an influx of people, crowds, parties, all this stuff going on. While they were hanging out that weekend, the idea at some point gets floated that maybe Daniel could come move from sleepy Amelia County to Virginia Beach and live with his brother and Anna Maria. They had a two-bedroom apartment, and he could certainly be a part of that. 
and Daniel really liked the idea. He liked it so much that by the time the trip was ending, he had already made the decision that he was going to take his friends back home and he was going to pack up the few things that he needed to have with him and he was going to come back and live with them. Anna Maria decided that she would ride back with Daniel, this couple he was friends with and their 18-month-old, because she wanted to see her family. Knowing that Daniel was going to return right back, it was an opportunity for her. Obviously, money is tight, but they don't have the means to just go visit family whenever they want. So here's a chance for her to come back for a quick evening or whatever, see some family, and then come right back home. So she decided she was going to ride along for the trip. Now, after Daniel dropped off this couple he was friends with and their 18-month-old, he took Anna Maria to her parents' house and then went home to pack up. It didn't take him very long. He only spent a few minutes at his parents' house gathering up the few things that he felt like he needed. You know, he didn't have a lot, and he didn't need a lot, and he was ready to go. His mother insisted that he take a blanket, and she particularly told him to take this brown electric blanket that they had. Well, you can't plug it in. They ain't got no electric. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. So he's going to be part of what fixes that problem because he had been working for his dad, helping paint all summer, and he was owed a sum of money, generally somewhere between six and $900, often referred to as $800. But in one reporting by the Richmond newspaper, according to his mother, it was only $160. Most sources say that it was somewhere between six and 900, and it seems like that number generally lands on $800 that he was owed for this work that he had done. And so that was part of his reasoning. You know, he goes back, he gets his stuff. He also gets the money that his dad was set to pay him for his work that summer. All right. So the brother's going to move in. Now there's going to be three of us paying the bills. He comes with some cash. We're going to get these lights turned back on. And then with the three of us, we'll be able to we'll be in good shape, cover this whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of their plan. After he got his money, the electric blanket his mom wanted him to take, and the couple things that he needed, threw it all in the Chevy Nova, he went to go pick up Anna Maria. While she was at home, her family says that she danced with her nephew, one of her nephews that she cared so much about. And one of the things that she did that really stuck out to me was she also took a can of tuna and told her mom she wanted to take it so that when she got back, she could make a sandwich for Clinton because they didn't have anything to eat at their house. Oh, damn. They're doing the best they can, but, you know, it's just not great. It's really sad. Two young people trying to make it work and just really having trouble. So they leave around 11.15 p.m. on Labor Day to head back to Virginia Beach. Daniel had planned to take Interstate 64 East to get to Virginia Beach from Amelia County. And if you've ever went to Virginia Beach from down that way, the Interstate 64, that's generally speaking the way you would go. And they had indicated to their families that was the route that they planned to take. This stretch of road, it's not as dark and desolate as the Colonial Parkway, but there's some similarities. You know, there's a good bit of trees, tall trees. It can feel a little bit creepy at night. You know, it's not quite the level of the Colonial Parkway, but we're in the same part of the world and it's similar. On Interstate 64, as you get further down toward Virginia Beach, there are two rest areas right off of 64. We're in, I think it's New Kent County. And there's one for each direction. So there's one rest area for eastbound travelers, one rest stop for westbound travelers. If you're looking at it from overhead, it's sort of like a mirror, right? They kind of mirror each other. They're at the same spot on the highway. There's a median that divides the highway. And then on each side, there are these rest areas. A state transportation official spotted Daniel's Nova around 9 a.m. on September 5th, 1989 at the westbound Interstate 64 rest area. Now, you heard me correctly. I said westbound. And the, they were going east. They were traveling east to get to Virginia Beach. Now, this rest stop was the kind that had the divided lanes, one area for cars and another for, you know, 18-wheelers. The Nova was parked on the 18-wheeler side right next to the exit ramp or that, that acceleration ramp for the truck so that they can get up to speed before they get on the highway. 
And the car was about as far from the rest area building as you could possibly get. And it was parked at just a weird angle. And it was right by a no parking sign. So there's a lot of, it's in an area, you know, it should be with the cars. Instead, it's with the trucks. It's in this acceleration lane, not in a parking spot. It's in some resources I've read that it was parked up on the sidewalk even. It was definitely at a strange angle, and it was right here in this by this no parking sign. And it's on the, the interstate going the wrong direction. So if you think about it, in pretty much every way imaginable, this car is not where it should be. It is completely out of place. Yeah, 100%. Now, the driver's side window was rolled down, not all the way, partway down. And a marijuana roach clip with some feathers that was Daniel's that typically would be hanging from his rearview mirror or somewhere else in the car was actually clipped to the window itself. Back then, that was a pretty common decoration, along with the graduation tassel or the dice. The fuzzy dice, yeah. It was like that, hanging from the rearview mirror, the feathers on the clip. Plenty of people, whether they smoked weed or not, had that hanging from the mirror. Absolutely, yeah. But I've never seen one on the driver's window, or any window. That's what was really weird about this, was where it was placed. It was already in Daniel's car. Nobody disputed. Everybody knew, yeah, it was his. He did smoke pot. That wasn't really anything the family disputed. That kind of maybe gives some context, but it's not really, I don't think that's too germane to this. I mean, unless he was transporting 100 kilos of weed to Virginia Beach, I don't think that really comes into play. That's a good point. Some have argued that maybe this was a drug deal gone wrong. So to that extent, it could be relevant, but there's just, there's a little bit of evidence for that, but not a lot. And we'll get into that. Now, Daniel's mom knew something was wrong and filed a missing persons report around 3 o'clock that day, 3 p.m. She just knew that whenever Clinton had said his brother didn't make it and enough time had passed that this was not right, that Daniel would have reached out, he would have called. He's not going to just disappear like that. So this report comes through to a Virginia State trooper who was actually at Daniel Chevy Nova about to have it towed away. And fortunately, he realized that maybe this is more than an abandoned car and he canceled the tow truck. Instead, he kind of looked to see, you know, what was going on in the car at that point, and he noticed that the keys were actually in the ignition. The passenger door was locked, and there was nothing really in the car that indicated that anything was wrong. What I mean by that is there wasn't blood everywhere. Um, There was like a gun laying on the seat. There wasn't anything that looked off just at face value by looking into the car. And Daniel, his family knew that he had traveled with a crowbar beside the seat as a form of protection. He kept that in his car. And that was even still in the car exactly where he kept it. It's also worth mentioning that Daniel's Nova was running fine. It didn't have any mechanical issues before he left for the trip or after they discovered it. And it had three quarters of tank of gas. There's really no reason. It wasn't like this was potentially some sort of mechanical trouble, flat tire, that kind of situation. None of that was an issue. Law enforcement thought that maybe Daniel and Anna Maria had wandered off together on foot and then had become lost. So they brought in some tracking dogs, but the dogs couldn't detect either of the victims leading away from the Nova. Now, the surrounding area where this rest stop is is densely wooded, but officers still searched it anyway. They searched around the westbound rest area and the eastbound rest area, but they found nothing. They also brought in a helicopter, but again, it was really hard to search just with how densely wooded this area is. They did this search for about three days, and ultimately they found nothing. The money that Daniel's father had given him was missing, and so was the brown electric blanket. Anna Maria had two wallets, one with makeup, and the other had her ID and some money in it, but the wallet with her ID and money was also missing. So we know it's not a makeup thief. It is not a makeup 
thief. That is correct. That's about all we can rule out. Yeah, so far, that's it on the list of things we can rule out. Now, after the pair went missing, the families recall that it rained a lot. It was more rainy than usual. The Phelps family put out a $7,000 reward for information, but they still weren't found. October came around, and hunting season started down in Virginia. And on October 21st, 1989, a pair of turkey hunters were out on their club's private grounds when they came upon a shocking scene. The remains of two people skeletonized at this point, one covered and the other partially covered by a brown electric blanket. What was left of these two bodies was laid side by side. They'd been out in this heavily wooded area for six weeks. Animals and elements had really taken a toll. And remember, it's been raining a lot, so decomposition and degradation has really set in at this point. All that's really left are the bones of these victims. There's no hair, and there's really uh, even some investigators reported that some of the smaller bones had even been taken away by animals or what have you. Scavengers, yeah, wow. Yeah. By all accounts that I've seen, it looks like this investigation and crime scene handling was the best out of the four cases we've talked about. The trooper who found the car actually treated it like a crime scene. And when these bodies were discovered by the hunters, the Virginia State Police immediately recognized what they might be dealing with. And so the state medical examiner came out to the scene. A tent was put up. They sifted through the dirt. They treated this more like an anthropological dig than the sort of blundering mess that had happened on some of the Parkway murders. They also apparently had checked the tires of the Nova for soil samples. Wow. It seems like, from what I've read, this is at least the most akin to a proper investigation out of what we've seen so far. Now, unfortunately, the bodies, the condition they were in, they had to be identified using dental records and x-rays, but the investigators were able to confirm that the remains belonged to Daniel and Anna Maria. Both of them still had their clothes on, and one lone earring was found with the bodies. You remember the locket that I talked about earlier that had the pictures of her nephews that Anna Maria wore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was not with her body, but investigators found it about 50 to 100 feet away on a logging trail that led up to where this area was. But the locket was by itself. The necklace was not with it. It wasn't on her and it wasn't with the lockets. That's weird. Yeah. And there's been lots of theories about did she somehow remove it and leave it as a breadcrumb to try to be found? Did the killer take it and then put it out on the trail as a taunt? Was it just dropped? You know, did the killer take it and then accidentally drop it on the way back? Or So there's lots of theories about how that came to be there. But for sure, it, it's something that really sticks out. And some investigators have said it's really the only piece of evidence around that scene that really stood out. In case you need to be even more upset about what's going on in this case, let's just take a look at what Commonwealth's attorney Thomas B. Hoover said at the time to supposedly alleviate people's fears about a serial killer or the fact that these crimes were all going unsolved. Because remember now, we're, what, four years and four double homicides at least, and there's been other crimes committed, of course. So instead of maybe trying to ramp up the investigation or find ways to get the community involved to try to help solve these cases, uh, he just blamed the rest area. He said it was, quote, known for crime, drug dealing, illegal encounters between promiscuous homosexuals. Oh, wow. Uh, not comforting and frankly not helpful. The state police also tried to downplay a serial killer angle saying, quote, the interstate is just a dumping ground, end quote. 
Okay, well, hold on, because I, I sort of get where they're coming from in that we don't necessarily need to be terrified that something bad is going to happen to us on the interstate. More than likely, this just happens to be bodies often do get dumped along highways and interstates. That doesn't mean that's where a crime took place. It's just a place that provides cover for people to dump bodies. So I get that. I don't get the other dude that says, well, rest stops are just crime ridden and like it's the victim's fault. It's not like they were in some dark alley in a city behind an adult bookstore and a liquor store where you could expect CD characters to be. Like, dude, it's your job as the government. If you're going to have rest stops, then make them somewhat safe. Yeah, for sure. They're just shrugging your shoulders and saying, oh, bad stuff happens there because that's what rest stops are. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely the tech he took was, was an interesting one. And you're right, the state police, to their point about, and in fact, during these searches to try to find Daniel and Anna Maria, other bodies were turned up. That fall, hunters were finding bodies everywhere, which just leads me to believe that my idea of outdoor activities beginning and ending with cutting my grass is really the right way to go. Yeah, these hunters, hikers and joggers just man, they always turn up some stuff. Yeah, it's like if you're not the one getting crimed, you're the one finding the people who got crimed. It's not pretty. But at the same time, you know, I'm glad somebody's out there finding this so that investigators have something to investigate. True. But better them than me. That's the point. Now, the cause of death has never definitively been determined for either Daniel or Anna Maria. Only one bone out of all the bones that were recovered had any sign of trauma at all. And it was one of Anna Maria's small finger bones. The medical examiner sent the remains to Dr. Owsley at the Smithsonian in D.C. Now, Dr. Owsley was the head of physical anthropology at the museum and a world-class expert. So again, you can see in this investigation, they're really, in my mind at least, they're taking some steps to try to really get this thing solved and to appreciate the magnitude of the situation. And he was also the command of B-613. No idea what you're talking about. Scandal. Oh, 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 oh. Papa Pope. That's funny. A good scandal reference. I should have picked up on that. So the records are still sealed, but investigators have shared that Dr. Owsley found a cut mark on one of Anna Maria's finger bones. He believed that it was a defensive wound, that she had raised her hand to prevent getting cut or stabbed. And in that uh, posture, the inside part of her hand had been cut and it had left this nick on her bone. Now, that can give you an idea of something that's happened, but of course that doesn't prove how she died or what the cause of death was. So it's limited in value. It shows that potentially there was a knife involved in this attack, but a little more than that. They could have been shot. It could have been through and through. That killed them by damaging their vital organs, but not leaving any sort of indication on any of their bones. For all we know, they could have been poisoned. Right. It's just not enough to go on here. Now, Daniel's friends who had went on the trip with their 18-month-old, if you remember them, they were interrogated and they were apparently looked at pretty hard because some sources I've read that there was some potentially suspicious behavior by the friends in the immediate aftermath of all this, but they were interrogated and ultimately they were never charged. And you just kind of step back for a second and look at this case and you see you've got missing cash, no known cause of death. There's a logging road and private hunt club area that is not the kind of place people know about. This isn't something that everybody had access to. It's sort of remote and secluded in a way that's just, you know, it's not something you just stumble upon. It's not attached to a park in an area that people could potentially go a lot. I don't know that I pointed this out earlier, but it's important in just thinking about frame of reference. This place where the bodies were discovered, 
it's about a mile as the crow flies from where the Nova was found, where it was recovered. But it's through wooded forests and this kind of area where it would be virtually impossible or at least pragmatically very difficult to walk from where the car was found directly taking that path. And again, just keep in mind, we have this kind of logging trail thing. It's all on private property. It's this hunt club area. So even if somebody were to drive there, you would really have to know that this place exists to get there. It's not the kind of place you're going to be at a rest stop with some folks that you've kidnapped or abducted, and then you're just going to very easily go, oh, I'll take them there. It's not that kind of place. So it's not like the offender could have just walked them out back of a rest stop and shot them or something. Yeah, it wouldn't be obvious in any way, sense or form. And so also, as the investigators initially, when they just knew that this was a missing persons case and thought maybe they've wandered off and gotten lost, it's not that kind of situation. And I, I don't think once they found the bodies, I don't think anybody really believed that anymore. It was pretty clear that it was more than that. Wandered off and getting lost didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. When they leave Amelia County after 11 o'clock at night, they're headed back to Virginia Beach. Uh I don't see stopping in the middle of nowhere and walking off in the woods just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree. One investigator said he believes the crime was committed by more than one person or somebody who was very strong, given the distance from the logging trail to where the bodies were ultimately recovered and the terrain, you know, it was a bit of a hike. So it was possible for one person, but it wouldn't have been easy and it would have required some real strength. Also, uh, the same investigator said that the scene looked like Daniel and Anna Maria had laid down side by side to go to sleep. They were close together and just sort of neatly beside one another that had this blanket draped over them. It was in that way, just a creepy, eerie kind of way that the bodies were found. He's not saying that's what happened. He's saying that's the way they were placed or how they died or something like that. Yeah, so, right. He doesn't mean they went and took a nap in the forest. He means, it's a good point. He means that whoever did this, the way that they were ultimately put there, it was reminiscent of if two people were sleeping in a bed together, this is what they would look like. Sure. Another person from the state police, Larry McCann, believes that this was the work of a predator. He thinks it's the same person that's responsible for the prior three murders that we've been talking about. And he thinks that the killer had knowledge of the logging trail and the hunting area, that he knew it well, and that he was just waiting for the right victims. You know, given the just where this is, how remote it is, and all those things, I can understand kind of thinking that way. Now, for motive, there's been a lot of speculation. Was this a robbery? There's about $800 that's missing or that was never recovered. That's a lot of money in 1989. I mean, that's a lot of money to me now, but thinking back that long ago, that was a lot of money in 1989. Yeah, that's a significant sum of money. And I think that is one thing that's important to remember when we're talking about a crime that occurred three decades ago. $800 now. He doesn't go as far as $800 did in 1989. But if he picked up that money that night, he had been in Virginia Beach and just made the decision over the weekend that he was going back to Virginia Beach. So then he picks up that money at whatever time of the evening at 11 o'clock, they head back to Virginia Beach. I can't imagine many people would have, I mean, did anybody know he was carrying that money and where he was going? There were some people who knew because remember they're down there for the weekend. He's with his friends. And I think that was part of why his friends got looked into. Because they were aware that the plan was for him to go back home, get his stuff, get paid from his dad, and then come back. And oh, I see. so they were aware of that. Anna Maria would have been aware of it. Obviously, she didn't kill him and take his money because she's with him and died too. His brother would have known, but there's nothing to suggest that his brother had any kind of involvement whatsoever. 
But so it is possible. Also, there is a note, but investigators have said that they investigated it early on. That was, I believe it was Anna Maria's sister provided it, where Anna Maria had written that they were intending to meet somebody at this rest stop. Now, the note, as I understand it, was provided to Steve Spingola, a private investigator who's reviewed the cases and reached his own conclusions and come up with theories about what he believes took place in all four of these double homicides. But in the note, Anna Maria talks about how Daniel and she are potentially meeting some people at this rest stop. That would be critical information. That does seem really important, but apparently investigators looked into this and ultimately were satisfied that whatever this was about was not the answer. And there's been some theories and speculation that maybe he's getting this money and the plan is to buy some drugs and to sell some drugs or whatever. This rest stop apparently was known as being a hotbed of criminal activity late at night. And so some folks have theorized that this is like a drug deal gone wrong or, you know, drug deal turned robbery or some situation like that. You know, anything's possible. The problem I have with that is where the bodies are found and some of this other stuff. It just... That's what I was just thinking. Okay, so he stops there. He's going to meet the plug and buy some weed. He pulls out his wallet and say he foolishly is flashing all this money he has. So the dealer says, I'll just take it all and then decides he's going to pop them both. <laughs> drug dealers don't wander you off way back into the woods a mile. Right. Yeah. You're getting put in your trunk and then the car's going to get left somewhere and that's going to be the end of it. It just doesn't really walk. Well, or yeah, maybe you just get, you get shot and left right there and that's the end of it. I feel like that's even more likely. Right. Because that would have been midnight or after. Right. Yeah. So I struggle to think that that's what happened here. It just doesn't quite add up for me at least. But otherwise, there's not a whole lot of clear motive in this case. The car was parked. That was interesting. The way it was parked, the windows rolled down, got the roach clip on the window. So then I'm left to wonder, well, we have a couple of these other cases where there's wallets that are left on the dash, right? Or on the floorboard, and it appears maybe they were on the dash and fell down. Some weird place that makes it look like the wallet had been opened. Right, like maybe, you know, it got pulled over by a law enforcement officer or something like that. So uh, let's say it's that kind of situation, right? They're at the rest stop. They stop because they have to go pee. Now, I think they'd be at the eastbound rest stop. So they're at the eastbound rest stop. They stop to use the bathroom or what have you, and they get approached by somebody. Or maybe they're nearing the rest stop even, and they get pulled over in the rest stop. He rolls his window down because somebody comes up and asks for the wallet and whatever, that kind of situation. Let's say he leaves the wallet on the dash like we've seen in these other cases. Let's remember this is a seedy area, a criminal hotbed. It's the middle of the night. Let's say there's a sketchy person who now sees an abandoned car and the window's down and there's a wallet on the dash. Maybe you reach in, you take the wallet and it's yours now. And I'm going to bet if I'm that person and later on I find out, oh, this guy's wallet that I stole because it had a bunch of cash in it. Yeah, I'm not going to go tell the police because they're going to look at me and think I'm the dude who murdered him. Well, sure. Although it sounds like a crazy coincidence, there have been many cases where thieves have gone a thieving, encountered a dead body, and either opted to call law enforcement because they wanted to come clean that, hey, I didn't kill him, or they completely avoid the whole situation because they're afraid if they get caught for the thievery, they'll get caught for the murder. Right. So that's, I mean, that's an interesting possibibility that the 800 bucks is completely unrelated, but it seems like since, you know, statistically, we're murdered by the ones we love, or at least the ones we know. The idea that if someone was going to be meeting them at the rest area or someone that knew, see the traveling thing, I don't know, unless somebody knew they were going to be at that rest stop or where they were going to be, even if you knew they were going to be traveling 64 East and had a bunch of money, how do you think you would intercept them to take it? I don't know. Yeah. And obviously the police, they really looked hard at those people. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't miss something or they couldn't have got away with it, but 
just given the way that they looked at that. I don't know. I'm just saying that's not the perfect theory. I mean, that's not the obvious answer because to make that work, if it was this couple with the 18 month old, they knew that they would be traveling down 64 and carrying this money in the car. How would they plan to intercept them mm -hmm. unless they knew they were going to stop at the rest stop or they knew that they customarily stopped at the rest stop or if they knew there was an appointment or right. maybe right. there was a, uh, a setup appointment. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You need some extra facts like that for sure. Investigators have also made a big deal about the roach clip. It seems like more often than not, the investigators comment on this as thinking that this is the killer taunting the police. I'm curious what you think about that. That's the thing that's driving me bananas. Is this, uh, so it's on the driver's window. Yeah, and it's very obvious, right? It's not like it's hidden. So honestly, when I first saw that, I thought, well, is this like some kind of weird way to try to like grab people's attention? And you know how you see cars broken down on the side of the road and they'll stick a t-shirt or a bandana or whatever, some article of clothing, or I've seen grocery bags, whatever. Yeah, they'll, tucked they'll, in the window, it's like, the, hey, I'm coming back. Don't tell my car, don't get rid of it. Yeah. It's the symbol for, I, I didn't abandon this. I just wondered, is that what this is supposed to be? Like, oh, hey, I'm coming back, so just ignore it. But it also doesn't jive with the way the car is placed. If you're going to do that, you think you'd put it in a parking spot that's for cars and someplace where it's going to get left a lot longer. But the car ran when they left home. The car ran after it was found, and it had plenty of gas. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the car at all. So why would he have needed to put this? I don't think Daniel would have done that. I'm saying, what if the killer, that's the thought process, is like, let me put this on here to make it seem like, oh, I'm coming back for the car. Oh, okay. Make it to make it look like. And so in thinking through that, I have thought about maybe the reason why it's where it is and it's not in one of those parking spots for cars is the fact that to park in a parking spot for cars, you're a lot closer to people. It's going to be a lot easier to be seen. So if the killer actually moved the car at some point, which I assume that's what happened, he's brought it there because there's nobody to see him driving it. He's far enough away from the rest area that there isn't going to be a witness who says, yeah, I saw this guy who's like six foot two and whatever, and he's wearing these clothes and he got out of that gold Nova. But if he's driving that, then how does he get away from there? Does he have an accomplice or does he then go by foot to get back to whatever he was driving? The offender. That's the million dollar question. Is it two people? Is it one person? All right. Is his car there? These are all good questions. But while there's a lot that we don't know, what we do know is that this case is just incredibly tragic. We're here more than three decades later talking, speculating, guessing, questioning, analyzing, and these families still have no idea what really happened to the people that they love and care about. They don't even know how Daniel and Anna Maria died, much less who did it. So again, just encourage everybody who's listening, if you know something, report it, share it. Even if you think it's a silly, trivial detail, it might not be. Reach out. Bill Thomas, as you've said, he's the guy on the forefront of this. He manages a Facebook page. They have a website. You can get a hold of him pretty easily. He makes himself easy to find. So reach out to him, reach out to the FBI, report it. So hopefully we can figure this thing out and get some whatever that can be gotten from solving these cases for these families. Some answers for sure. They definitely deserve answers. Yeah. The murder of Daniel and Anna Maria was the last of four double homicides that took place in relatively close proximity in less than three years, commonly referred to as the Colonial Parkway murders. We presented each of these cases in a separate episode, but in the next episode, we'll look at what they all have in common, where they differ, and a few characters that seem to pop up across all of the Colonial Parkway murders. <music>
Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. I don't know why I'm so dry. I don't know. I, I, I gotta get a drink. <laughs>